All right, hello, I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, producer of this amazing show, which we are so excited to share with you tonight. I own the PR firm and publishing Incandescent Inc. And I'm proud to be here today with these other amazing women. The first in our series of podcasts and videos inspired by the abortion law recently passed by the Texas legislator. Since January, 2021, I have been producing a weekly show for the organization VoicesForChange.net, founded by award-winning filmmaker, Tracy Schott. She created Finding Jen's Voice, which is an amazing film that talks about one of the leading causes of death during pregnancy is murder. Tracy will be talking about that today. She will also be hosting the show, which includes her colleague, Kelsey McKay, former district attorney in Austin, Texas, and one of the most recognized national experts on criminal asphyxiation in the context of sexual and interpersonal violence, child abuse, and human trafficking. Kelsey is the president and CEO of the nonprofit working to raise awareness called Respond Against Violence. Together, these two powerhouses knew they had to be part of the conversation on the topic they titled, What's Abortion Got to Do With It? And this podcast series is the result of their conversation. So I'm going to throw it over to Tracy and also introduce Erica Olson, MSS, MLSP, who specializes in gender-based violence and trauma-informed care and management. She will share her insights into the far-reaching consequences of the government controlling women's bodies and share what we know about the impact of these types of laws on gender-based violence. So take it away, Tracy. Thanks, Hope, and thanks for all of you for your uh, patience as we fought the internet gods. Um, so t- <laughs> today we're talking about abortion. What's abortion got to do with uh, domestic violence? Uh, you, as uh, you may know, Voices for Change came out of the um, film that I created uh, called Finding Jen's Voice. And Finding Jen's Voice happened after Jennifer Snyder was murdered by her married boyfriend because she was pregnant and refused to have an abortion. Um And in the process of doing the research for the film, I learned a few very disturbing facts. One was that one of the leading causes of death during pregnancy was homicide. And usually by an intimate partner, frequently by the father of the child. Um, The other thing I learned is that domestic violence, intimate partner abuse, intimate partner violence, these terms are used interchangeably, um, is a many faceted um, uh, phenomenon. It's way more than what most people understand as black eyes and, um, and you know, bruised and broken arms, right? It's, it's way bigger than that. It has to do with power and control. And there are lots of different ways that abusers use power uh, to control um, their victims. Um, and one of those types of control is reproductive control. So I want to kind of give you just a little bit of it. We're going to talk more about reproductive control later, but right now I just kind of want to give you a little bit of a taste of it. So what is reproductive control? Reproductive control is when we use coercion, violence, or threats to force pregnancy or abortion without the consent of a woman. 
So one of the examples is um, a partner might sabotage um, a victim's use of um, birth control, maybe um, not use a condom when they, you know, say they are, um, hide, steal, uh, get rid of uh, birth control pills. Um, in It's a way of forcing a pregnancy that the victim doesn't want right? There can be threats um, to uh, that person or her children that if she doesn't uh, go along um, with uh, becoming impregnated, um, that she, you know, somebody's going to get hurt. Rape is clearly um, a way of forcing abortion, uh, forcing pregnancy, right? Um, and frequently, that same perpetrator that forces pregnancy will turn around and then force that person to have an abortion as well. Um, so there's a, it's, it's a very complex issue, um, but one that really kind of messes with your mind, uh, not to mention your own health. Um, the bottom line about repro reproductive control is that a woman is not in control of her body. And she is forced to carry, you know, whether or not she is forced to carry a pregnancy to term, gives birth and raises a child, that that power is taken away from her in under reproductive control in an abusive relationships. So when you look at abortion laws, it's really fair to say that abortion laws um, that prevent a woman from obtaining an abortion in a safe way are really state-sanctioned versions of reproductive control. So in that context, I get a phone call from my friend Kelsey uh, a week or so ago. And like many women I know, she's like, ah, we got to talk about this law in Texas. It is, it is beyond belief. So um, and when she started telling me about this law, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is so much more than what I understood just reading it, the headlines, right? So we're going to start with Kelsey here to um, really kind of unpack the law a little bit for us. Tell us um, a little bit about what what the ins and outs of it are. It's an unusual law. And, um, and then Erica and I are going to jump in and really um, try to uh, help us all understand a little bit more about what this means for women. So Kelsey, take it away. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us this morning. Well, yeah, depending on what coast you're on or, or time zone, you know, this law is like a complicated law school exam question. You know, when laws start to get this, you know, it's like 13 printed pages with an eight point font. You know, I always like to consider what are the unintended consequences of laws. Usually the law itself, however, isn't as complicated. So I'm gonna kick this off, I think. You know, we really hope to give people the language to start conversations that aren't polarizing on this issue. It's so easy to be on this side or that side. You know, you're pro-life, you're pro-choice, anti-abortion. And I really wanted to connect with Tracy in this audience and bring in Erica to start to have conversations that aren't polarizing, to better understand not only this law, but how it really doesn't achieve what people who often fight 
for the pro-life movement intended, um, what the consequences are going to be, because so often when these laws are legislated, they don't think about the unintended consequences. So to kind of take a step back, connect with the audience, I, it, you know, it wouldn't be right if we didn't start with an analogy to current times. And so when you hear Tracy talk about reproductive control, it's kind of like, wait, what do you mean? And um, what I thought about in doing this podcast is how it's so easy for those of us who understand the nuances in domestic violence, sexual assault, control, to say this is about controlling women's bodies, right? And people will look at us and they don't know what that means. So I'm hoping that what we can do today is give you a little details on the law and then talk to you about what we mean when we say that this is something that controls women. So let's start with the analogy of Britney Spears, right? So reproductive control can be confusing um, and nuanced. And Tracy gave some great examples. But think about a few months ago when Britney Spears um, in the, the conservatorship with her father was in the news and people heard about one of the things she described in the phone call with the judge was that she was forced to have an IUD put in. And so everyone was outraged. And it was the greatest example of one way Things can be used within an abusive relationship, which, um, you know, the dynamics are certainly there. The use of the legal system to contribute to them is also an analogy as we go through this law. But just think about it. That was taking the choice away from Britney Spears to make a decision about whether or not she would have a child, get pregnant. And it was really about choice. And so I think that's a great segue into discussing this law in a different way and really understanding that what we want to do is unpack how it's going to be misused. Um, so again, it, it is like a complicated law school exam question. It would take me 20 hours to go through each of the nuances, but essentially to give an overview, what this law does is essentially bans any abortions uh, once, quote, embryonic cardiac activity can be detected. So you hear politicians all the time try to sell things in a way that's going to get the votes. So the way they describe that is they've defined this as the heartbeat bill. So at the point that heartbeat can be detected, which of course is earlier and earlier with some of the imaging and the technology that we have right now. Um, and so the way they define it is when that cardiac activity can be detected. So how this is different than a lot of other laws is one, obviously it brings it so much sooner into the pregnancy. It really limits the amount of time a woman might have to make the choice, which is kind of ironic because all the laws leading up to this in Texas have tried to, under the guise of the woman's health, they have added restrictions, waiting periods, um, a variety of things that says slow down, right? In hopes that she won't ultimately get the abortion and they can achieve their promises to their voters. What's different about this is it kind of turns that on the head. Now there is no time to process. You may not even know you're pregnant until the day before this and you'll be banned from an abortion. And I was listening to a podcast or a news story earlier that on September, I'm sorry, on August 31st, right? Abortion clinics were up late working into the night. So what if some of those children um, were wanted? And what if some of those pregnancies would have continued, right? It really shows that this isn't about saving lives. Um, and so Unlike many other laws that allow pregnancies um, and abortions within a pregnancy up to 23-ish weeks, this cuts it all the way down 
to um, really six to eight weeks. And again, the way that they define the length of the pregnancy, the weeks, is they're counting with that medical clock. And it's interesting because both Governor Abbott and my husband brought up the point to me that they didn't understand how pregnancy days was counted medically. So, right, they count those first two weeks between the first day of your menstrual cycle and the time there's a fertilized eggs as already being two of those weeks. So by taking it down to eight weeks, effectively, they've said, you know, unless you catch it the first day, um, you're unlikely to even have the choice to have an abortion or not. And I think it's really important, Kelsey, to talk about this law actually is six weeks, right? It, it's it's um, number one, we don't have a doctor on here, but we know that uh, it is really misleading. It's electrical activity that occurs yes. in the area formed by what uh, may eventually be a heart, number one. Number two, we also have to remember that when we talk about the fact that uh, people making these decisions aren't even clear about menstruation, menstrual cycles, just the physical part of this, that the way that gestation is counted in the United States is that it's uh, four weeks. So when you count your first day of your period, four weeks later, you're only talking about two weeks from the time uh, a woman normally gets her period. And that's making an assumption that your periods are regular, that your periods, um, that your life is not stressful, that you don't have underlying medical conditions. So that sort of timing uh, is not guaranteed. And for an incredible number of women, they don't necessarily have regular menstrual cycles in which they'd even be able to be aware that they would be pregnant much less for, say, a trauma victim to have the time to process all the ins and outs of carrying a pregnancy to term, giving birth, and what those implications mean for her or her child in terms of their mental, physical, and financial health. And I think that's really critical to understand for the Texas law. Absolutely. And I've heard a lot of discussion around like, oh, she wouldn't even know she was pregnant yet. And, you know, my feedback on that is that's exactly the point. You know, they tried to allow for some abortion because, you know, in addition to many other constitutional and just basic jurisprudence and um, issues related to this particular law, you know, like that's not really the debate because that is kind of the point of laws to essentially end any access to abortion in Texas, which of course is what's going to happen because the law itself is designed to create um, uh, to create so many different nuances and so many legal repercussions if you are in any way associated with anyone who ever gets an abortion in Texas. And so that is one of the things that is so scary because it's this law is written so that there is not a lawsuit filed against the woman who gets the abortion, but really anyone who kind of aids and abets that. And so the implications of that are really, really scary because not only does it leave people open to liability well beyond the physician, the nurse and the clinic itself, but anyone who might make a woman who is raped um, or is a victim of incest, um, we have a duty to make sure they understand what their options are, right? Crisis centers, you know, when victims go and speak with them, forensic nurses, when the woman is getting a forensic exam after a sexual assault, you know, a child, you know, as young as I've, you know, a few weeks ago, there were many girls I know in Texas, 12 years old, pregnant with their father's children that last month were able to get abortions and today will not be able to do that. So it's not really about, you know, the woman's health. It really is about forced pregnancy and forced birth, both of which are um, dangerous in and of the, themselves. But what's terrifying is it takes away in cases 
where a woman might otherwise have a support system, you know, go talk to her pastor, go talk to a counselor, an advocate of the rape crisis center, maybe come talk to someone like me, reach out to an attorney. Um, to, it allows for all of those people to be sued. And that's what's so terrifying because the goal, of course, is to not have any access to abortion. But now not only are we removing that access to abortion, we're actually removing the entire support system that supports victims who experience sexual violence, interpersonal violence, um, and may end up in a situation where they have to make this difficult choice. So that's kind of terrifying from the perspective of how it's going to impact victims um, who were sexually abused or otherwise um, abused and need access to care. Um, Kelsey, you you mentioned that um, people can be sued for helping a, a woman get an abortion, but this is not. So this law is not a criminal law. This is a civil law, which is pretty different from what we've seen in the past. Correct. Absolutely. So usually laws are enforced by the state. So when we talk about infringing or restricting a constitutional right, when we add a restriction, it is usually the state adding that restriction. And so therefore, the state is the one who is in charge of enforcing the law. In this case, it's entirely different. And that was craft crafted purposefully. If you make the law too difficult to appeal, which essentially is what has occurred here, is we don't sue the state and then it goes up your traditional route. Instead, we've done it in a way that it is civil jurisprudence. So another one, in other, in other way, um, words, someone, a private citizen, you know, is kind of given full throttle ability to enforce this law. So it essentially deputizes citizens to enforce the law instead of the state regulating it in any way. And, you know, it was one of the additions that was crafted purposely to make it difficult um, for it to go to the Supreme Court and to be appealed, um, as we saw happen last week. Um, and so it's it's fascinating because not only is it not a criminal violation, it's a civil court proceeding. It violates every jurisprudence law that surrounds civil procedure. And, you know, civil procedure is something that we take that first year of law school and you realize there are basic fundamental things we need to have in a lawsuit. First, you need to have standing, which means, am I a party to the suit? Does it make sense? I'm a party to the suit. So for instance, my husband is a contractor. If he violated a contract, the person who he had that contract with would be the person to sue my husband or his company. This law is totally different. Not only can you sue anyone who might have ever spoken to my husband about that contract, you know, the contractor, the architect. Um, it also enables other people who have nothing to do with the suit to file a lawsuit, even if you're outside Texas. So it means that all of the groups, um, the, the right to life groups who are already creating these lawsuits, you know, they are going to be able to sue all the people around the woman who received the abortion. And it's really unheard of, which is why it's so complicated, is because in general, you have to at least be relevant to the lawsuit. So this is just kind of like open game. So I'm going to give you an example. If you think about gun rights, for instance, what this essentially says is if we placed a restriction on gun rights, so a law just passed in Texas where everyone can open carry, say we had a restriction that you couldn't open carry. The way to enforce that, if we were to replicate the abortion enforcement, is for allow every private citizen, you know, walking around to sue anyone who openly carried a gun. And you would just have these flurries of lawsuits. And in essence, what happens um, is that everyone can target 
whoever may have provided any type of support. And it really is to cause chaos. Um, it's this is like jurisprudence chaos because you also used to, you usually have to have some type of harm. So a harmed party is the one who is a plaintiff in a lawsuit. But here it's like, what is, what is your harm? And so it really opens the door for it to be abused. Um, it, we see so much legal abuse when we work with domestic violence. This really opens the door to that, um, to just be taken advantage of. Kelsey, can you talk a little bit about just going along with that, this, the fact that there is a, there is a bounty for anyone who files a suit, as well as how, again, different from typical civil cases, can you clarify about how the law states that not just one person can sue someone, but an infinite number of people could same could uh, could sue the yeah. same person? And about the chilling effect that that really has on anyone who might provide medical or mental health care for pregnant women. Yeah, no, I mean that that's a really good point, and that's that's kind of the challenge here. Is usually if you think of it in terms of like criminal law. You know, most people are familiar with the term double jeopardy. So if the state tries a criminal for like murder and they get a not guilty, you can't then go try it out again. You know, that's that's double jeopardy. Or even if they get a conviction, you can't then prosecute them for the same crime you've already litigated. And so how this is very different is not only does it have a financial incentive attached to encourage people to sue those who may have aided and abetted. It also rewards them with legal fees in the end. So in other words, one of the things that prevents people from filing, um, you know, just totally pointless lawsuits is that there is a disincentive because there's going to be a financial cost, lawyers, fees, and all of these things. What this lawsuit, I'm sorry, what this legislation does is it says, you know what, don't worry about that because if you succeed, not only will there, there be an award starting at $10,000 that the provider or the person who did the aiding and abetting will have to pay you, they're also going to have to pay for your attorney's fees. And when you look at the other side of that, the problem is in a case where a litigant would succeed by suing, for instance, the abortion provider, they win in court, they prove they did it, they get their lawyer fees taken care of. In the reverse, it's totally different. So in other words, someone who may have had a conversation as say a rape, rape crisis advocate with a victim after a rape, explaining what their options are, if that woman then goes and she gets an abortion as a result, um, and anyone knows about that conversation with the advocate, what this means is that advocate can be sued, whether or not they really did that or not. You know, this is what frivolous lawsuits are about. But what that means is if, if that advocate is sued, and eventually succeeds and is able to prove that they did not aid and abet an abortion, they're still out all the money. They don't get attorney's fees. They do not get coverage. And so unfortunately what that's gonna mean is people are just going to isolate themselves away from rape victims who may, might need some guidance because there's no benefit if you win. And so it, it just sets the stage for something to be abused. And so that's a really good point, Erica. And there are just so many different ways that this law puts victims um, in harm's way. I find it, I mean, to me, it's terrifying. It's, it is really about kind of systemically shutting down any supports that a victim of violence, rape might have. I mean, they're, they're going to be, they're going to be isolated completely. Right. And, and then think about like the abuser can, you know, may, maybe she is, you know, 
trying to leave the relationship yep. and the abuser can sue her for any perceived uh, move toward aborting. Right. Child. Well, and I mean, it doesn't even have to be based on like any type of moral or ethical baseline. So that really allows it to be misused, not only by specific individual abusers, but it allows the system itself to continue the abuse um, because it gives absolutely no protection. There's no you know, baseline where you have to at least prove probable cause or reasonable suspicion. You know, it just allows to for a flurry of lawsuits to take place. And yeah, you know, I really want to bring this conversation to those victims. I um, mean, Governor Abbott, it was so interesting. Uh, it's so clear he doesn't understand the nuances of sexual violence and domestic violence um, and incest. And it, it, that he absolutely doesn't understand what the journey of a victim is like after experiencing something like this. Because in response to everyone just kind of outraged that there's no exception for an 11 year old who gets raped by her father and is impregnated, which might sound far fetching for a lot of people listening, but it's not. These are cases we deal with every day. And so the fact that there was no exception for that is I think what is the most important conversation here, because I think it's where there's gonna be common ground. So not the polarized conversations, but it's a conversation that we must discuss because this is going to isolate, judge, shame. It's gonna to lead to so many negative consequences for victims of rape. And as Governor Abbott um, earlier this week said that essentially, oh, don't worry about that. We're not gonna, we would never force a rape victim um, to, to birth the child of her rapist. And his solution to that was, we're just going to eradicate rape. And, you know, it's it just showed to me how misunderstood domestic violence and sexual assault is because, you know, that's the problem. Not only can we not and do we not prosecute rapists, especially in the context of intimate partner sexual assault, um, he made it seem like we could just walk out and get them off the streets. And, right, this is... Well, it also means you'd know who would rape. I mean, if we're talking about a rapist, that that means they have already committed rape. The harm's already happened. So unless we're envisioning a society like the Minority Report with Tom Cruise, where we're talking about pre-crime, nobody wears a sign that says I'm a potential rapist. And in this country, we very much value that we don't charge people who have not committed crimes with crimes. So it's not a solution. Um, either in a moral sense or by the law. And I'm really glad, Tracy, that you brought up talking specifically about um, battered women or victims of sexual assault or trafficking victims, because this is a subgroup in particular that's put deeply, deeply put in danger by this law. And when we think about domestic violence, right, when we think about coercion and control and victims not really having a choice, whether they're pressured or whether they're gaslit. We know that a tactic that individual batters use is they often say to them, well, I'm doing this for your own good. You know, I don't want you to work because I love you. I want to take care of you. I don't, you know, or I can't let you hang out with her. She's a bad influence. This is for your own good. And that's been the basis for a lot of forced birth legislation in this country, including SB8 in Texas. It's this is for the betterment of women, or this is really for the good of, of the unborn or for children. But we know that the law doesn't have that impact. When we're talking about victims of trafficking or talking about victims of domestic violence or sexual assault. They have been harmed and they've been traumatized. And to force them to give birth 
without any other option actually just continues the short and the long-term health consequences. I mean, we don't just pop out a baby, right? There, there, we, don't, we don't really talk about what are the health consequences. We're talking preeclampsia, we're talking hypertension, we're talking gestational diabetes. These health conditions can last long after the birth of a child. And you know, Erica, that really with health complications, I wanna unpack that for a second because of course, us banning, you know, when the state doesn't allow access to abortion, as Erica said, you don't just pop it out. And when you think about the population who is going to be forced to do this, right, people with means and financial means are going to be able to take a flight or drive to a different state and have an abortion. So what, who does that leave not having access to abortion? And as you brought up trafficking individuals, you know, we have such vulnerable populations who are raped daily and the risk of getting pregnant um, is incredible. And so the problem is those are going to be the women who are stuck, who don't have access to it. And so we have to assume that that's also the population that's unlikely to get prenatal health care. And so it's not like, oh, now that we're going to make you stay pregnant and take, take away your access, we're also going to give you funding for um, health insurance, to take prenatal vitamins, to have the glucose tests. If this were about a woman's health and a child, right, then those things would have been attached to this 13-page piece of legislation. And what, and what about uh, after the baby's born? Um, right. who, who's going to pay for child care? Yeah. Well, and I think that's child health care. Who's going to pay for the education? Who's going to pay for housing? Because, you know, she has, she's now got a child and she's no longer welcome where she was before. Absolutely. And important in, in, in cases, depending on the culture that uh, a woman comes from, right? We can't, when we have this conversation, we're not talking about a homogenous group of women that are all the same. Women come from different cultural, religious, socioeconomic, and ethnic backgrounds. It can be incredibly taboo to have a pregnancy out of wedlock, for example, or it might be in a culture where they don't discuss rape. And so we really have to think about the real life implications. I think same thing when we're looking at victims that are involved in, in a relationship where there's domestic violence, we know that 25% of intimate uh, partner violence victims also report reproductive coercion and control, which I know we'll unpack a little bit later, but they were forced into a pregnancy, either by coercion or by pressure or by actual rape or assault. And we also know that intimate partner violence during a pregnancy is linked to a higher risk of being murdered by your partner. We know that when you're experiencing domestic violence in pregnancy, both the mother and the baby have higher risks of long and short-term physical health effects. We're talking depression. We're talking um, poor birth weight. We're talking about poor, poor outcomes as the child grows. We're talking about problems between bonding, postpartum depression, and breastfeeding. So then that baby isn't getting what they need. So when we are talking about forcing women to give birth, no matter what, after six weeks, and we know that in 25% of domestic violence cases, women have been forced to get pregnant or carry their baby to term. And we know that there are risks to them being higher risk of being murdered, higher risk of physical complications during the birth to both the baby and the mother. We talk about even after birth in 30 to 60% of cases where the batterer is abusing their adult partner, they're also abusing the child that's then born. How is that for the health of that child? You know, we, you know, we, we really need to call this legislation what it is and it's forced birth. 
but it most certainly is not concerned with the health or well-being of that child or of the mother. That's very clear. Absolutely. And it really is, you know, the, the population this is going to impact the most, um, those who aren't going to be able to take a flight and get an abortion elsewhere. It is that exact population that's not going to have access to all that prenatal care, which means we're going to have very unhealthy pregnancies. We're going to have more women die. We're certainly going to end up with a lot of children who are going to die. We'll get stuck in the birth canal. Well, um, because of the untreated gestational diabetes, you know, we're going to be 14 pounds. Um, that you're right with the uh, hypertension and preeclampsia going undiagnosed. I mean, imagine how that's going to ravage all of these people and just the basic health of the mom. So until I see something attached to this, that not only facilitates things like prenatal health, which right now they're not going to have access to because clinics like Planned Parenthood are going to have to shut down right? We are taking away all of those options and we're going to end up with an absolutely terrifying um, result when it comes to these vulnerable women. And I think some people so that we can unpack this about, well, well, what do you mean it's about controlling women? You know, I have a lot of people in my life who are very pro-life. I used to be very outspoken pro-life, you know, as a 19 year old who didn't know the realities of sexual assault and violence that I deal with every day. You know, if, you know, it's uninformed, I didn't understand the constitutional elements of it. You know, it took going through three years of uh, law school, and I am obsessed with different constitutional arguments, and really any opportunity I had in law school to do a research on a part of the abortion law to kind of attack it. Um, I'm sorry, to attack the law of Roe v. Wade. Um, the more I learned about it, the less emotional I got it about it and the more informed I became. And I understood the dangers associated with, you know, legislating activism. And that's what this is, because you may think these politicians who are saying, you know, oh, you know, this is about the most vulnerable. This is about unborn life. They do that right because they know that that is the hook for a huge chunk for voters in the United States, because we do have many people who are um, ethically and morally driven by this decision about abortion. And that's absolutely OK. In America, we should have those diverse opinions. The difference, though, is that these abortion laws aren't going to achieve those goals. So, right, if you are voting for these politicians because you want to have Roe v. Wade overturned, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, how that's not what's, one, going to happen. And two, you cannot necessarily trust a politician who's motivated by power and money and votes to speak the truth on this law because their job is to get the votes and to get your money. And so think, for instance, if you were to go to a rally with a candidate and they were to get up and say, you know, top on my agenda is controlling women. Right? If they were to get up there and say that, you know, I would hope the majority of the people would walk away. And so what I want those of you um, who need to have conversations with loved ones, friends and family, I encourage you to have it in a different way and kind of point out how they've been tricked by politicians, because these are very well-intended people. I mean, some of these people are in my family and their intentions are good. But unfortunately, these politics have learned that these politicians have learned that. So instead, right, instead of saying my number one legislative priority is to control women, they have to say something else. So what they say is, you know, we're here to protect the unborn, the most vulnerable. I'm here to tell you, I've seen the vulnerable people in our communities, the trafficked victims, the abused 
women, the sexually assaulted children. I have seen the worst of the worst sexually sadistic, horrible people out there. We have plenty of vulnerable people that are alive that we need to serve. Um, you know, alongside this. And so you have to think through the motivations of these legislators. And it is absolutely horrifying to me to see how easy it has been for them to trick, you know, well-meaning people. And so I would really ask you to look at your legislature. If you're going to make a political campaign contribution or a donation, I really ask that you look at that legislator's history on voting. You know, were they supportive? of trafficking um, bans? Were they supportive of sexual assault laws? Are they supportive of funding and training and providing law enforcement with the tools that they need to better investigate these crimes? You know, did they support the teen dating violence stuff that Governor Abbott vetoed? You know, where did they stand on the meaningful laws that protect women in a meaningful way and protect our most vulnerable populations like trafficked individuals, um, like homeless populations, um, like victims and survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault? And I think what you'll find is that many of them didn't support those meaningful changes that really would have led to unintended pregnancies not occurring. Because, right, if we don't have women being raped, um, then we're not going to have as many unintended pregnancies. And so it's, know, it's, it's really like we used to say in group when I used to facilitate groups for survivors, um, let's match the batterers words with their actions. And if they are not concurrent, that helps reveal sort of what's underlying it. And there may or may not be an intent, but I, I think Kelsey is also speaking to the de facto consequence or impact, which is whether or not you did or didn't intend, at the end of the day, this is what's happening. And I think we have to be very honest about that. Well, I agree. And I think that, you know, it, this is obviously a big topic, which is why, as Hope said at the beginning, we're going to make this a series um, because um, there are just so many layers and nuances. The law particularly is 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 very scary when you think about um, uh, giving uh, abusers really another weapon, another tool to control um, their victims. Um, that is, that's scary to me. It's in our current political climate and with the, you know, the lack of gun control in uh, Texas, I feel like this yeah. is, this is violence just waiting to happen. Um, and it's another way that women are, are going to be targeted, um, particularly these vulnerable populations that you've mentioned. So it's, it is, it's a really um, terrifying um, use of control and um, misuse of authority and misuse of the law. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I just don't think that people understand it. So I really appreciate you unpacking it for us, uh, Kelsey, and helping us flesh that out a little bit more. Um, the next time we get together, I know we want to talk more about what reproductive control looks like, and um, Erica will really help us kind of flesh some of that out some more about how people um, who are in abusive relationships, um, how ab abortion is, is weaponized, really, in so many different ways. And um, I think it's really important for us to, to really understand that and and particularly, of course, my passion is preventing intimate partner violence. Um, and this law, of course, 
does the opposite of it. Um, I I would encourage Tracy, you know, if in the interim between these two talks, one, you know, knowledge is power. So I I would encourage everyone to look at things um, that might educate you more beyond, you know, the headlines. And one specific thing you can look at is the number of pregnant women who were killed this year in Texas by their abusers, mainly by a gun. So I'd encourage you to educate yourself about those cases. If you go to uh, Texas Council on Family Violence, does an honoring Texas victims report every year that they look at the domestic violence homicides that occurred in Texas. You know, you'll notice a few things. You'll notice a lot of guns are used and you'll notice a lot of pregnant women are killed. So when I see similar outrage to that, then I will start listening to uh, folks like Governor Abbott who say that this is to protect women's health because until I start seeing that in the headline, I. I don't buy it. Um, And so I want people to do meaningful things and educate themselves and start getting outraged about things that are actually occurring and that are actually harming women and children um, in this state because our domestic violence homicides are going way up. And and Kelsey, um, Texas uh, has a particularly uh, heinous uh, statistics, but it's um, it's all over the country, it's all over the world. Um, Domestic violence, intimate partner homicide, these are problems that um, are not getting better. And one of the things that we learned in the last year that the the pandemic even made the numbers worse. So we know that this is this is a big problem and it's a complex problem. So I do encourage people to educate yourselves. Please visit respondagainstviolence.org a new, a new nonprofit. And we really wanted to think tank style. We really, really want to facilitate these conversations, bring sides together, collaborate. And we have our very first fundraiser coming up. Um, I'd love if people visit our website. We are going to do a Luna Fest, uh, which is an incredible series of mini documentaries. I know, Tracy, you've participated in, in the past. And it is films, uh, document, short documentary films about women by women. So if you go to either respondagainstviolence.org or go to Luna Fest. You can find us for $20. You can watch these inspirational films and the proceeds go to benefit Respond Against Violence to encourage us to have more of these conversations. Um, Respond Against Violence is a great um, resource uh, to find information, particularly in regards to what's going on in Texas right now. Um, Also, you know, as always, visit VoicesForChange.net. Uh, Voices, the number four, change.net, and that we have a ton of information there as well. We kind of complement each other in in the types of um, work that we're doing. So we're really happy to be working together to spread the word and help people understand intimate partner violence and homicide in ways that can make a difference, can change the statistics. So that is always our goal. So I'm going to sign us off. I promise to do this in under 45 minutes and I'm going to do it (laughs) except for the, you know, technical questions at the beginning. Um, So uh, I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. Hope, take it away. Tell us when we're going to be here again. Thank you all. That was fascinating, heartbreaking, and just so important for us to truly understand how to unpack it as women, as sisters, as mothers, as friends. So we will be back on Tuesday, September 21st at 5 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Central for episode two, where we're going to continue this conversation about coercive control, reproductive control, and what that truly means. So thank you all for joining us. We're sorry we were a little late, but 
We came through. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Erica. Thank you so much, Kelsey McKay, for your brilliant legal analysis. So we will uh, see you all soon, Tuesday, September 21st, 5 p.m. Eastern. And this is also going to be the topic of the cover story for the October issue of Incandescent Women magazine. So you'll be able to rewatch these, uh, these videos and podcasts, listen to these podcasts, and read all about it. So we thank you. We look forward to talking more, and we encourage you to get educated as well. So thank you, ladies. 